Welcome to the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast. My name is Dishak Arnajani, and I'm a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University. I'm joined today by Adam Getachew. Professor Getachew is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago and holds a joint PhD in Political Science and African American Studies from Yale University. Her research and teaching interests include modern political thought with a focus on the 19th and 20th centuries, the history of international law, theories of empire and race, black political thought, and post-colonial political theory. Her new book, World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, examines the political thought of African, African-American, and Caribbean thinkers and activists in order to arrive at an understanding of decolonization as nothing less than world-making, rather than merely the project of making a world of empires into a world of nation-states. So could we start by um, just sort of talking about the book in general and, and how you came to, to writing about decolonization as a world-making project? Sure. Um, so I started this book uh, while I was in graduate school at Yale. I was in a PhD, joint PhD program in political theory or political science and African-American studies. And um, the project, I think, came out of sort of three different preoccupations and that stemmed from those two, being in those two fields. One was uh, sort of coming out of African-American studies, there had been for really since the publication of Paul Gilroy's Black Atlantic in uh, the early 90s, a concern with thinking through the internationalist and transnational context of Black politics and Black political thought. Um, So especially folks like Michelle Stevens and Brent Hayes, what Edwards, others, had really been thinking through contours of a kind of transnational um, transnational political projects and um, cultural practices that emerged out of those contexts. But a lot of that work sort of ends or, or imagines that 1945 is really the kind of culmination of um, that form of internationalism. And, you know, after World War II, there's a kind of pivot um, to decolonization and to sort of the nation state form. Um, So one of the things I wanted to do is try and think about what maybe the afterlives or the kind of new versions of internationalism were in the context of colonization. Um, So think with with that diasporic orientation about a kind of black internationalism, but thinking about what it looked like after after World War II. Um, uh, I think the second sort of a place this work emerged from was in political theory there has been for kind of about 20 years now a real interest in recovering or rethinking the place of empire in the history of political thought and a large a lot of this work um, tried to rethink sort of canonical figures in the history of political thought from Locke to the mills in the 19th century and to reconstruct the imperial contexts of their writing and to think then about how we how both the ways we read those texts and teach those texts um, shifts dramatically when we think about that imperial context. Uh, so I you know I think the real lesson of that body of work was to try and um, or at least the lesson for me was that whereas we kind of we had been taught and I was taught political theory as a set of kind of questions about the just political order understood always as a kind of domestic political order or democracy or sovereignty as um, domestic concerns, what that body of work really did for me was um, uh, provide a framework for thinking about the the domestic and international as entangled, um, the ways in which people, figures who are writing about sovereignty or democracy in this period really have to think about its it's it in relation to a kind of international um, and an, an international and an imperial context. Um, so I really took that lesson and again wanted to think wanted to think about uh, carrying that story forward into the 20th century and into the history of decolonization. So if we took seriously that really the domestic and the international were um, forms of modern politics were born together and born in an imperial context. How did anti-colonial figures take up and, and respond to that set of predicaments um, was a second kind of question. And then I think finally a third um, is really a more kind of contemporary 
contemporary theory um, sort of debates around um, uh, cosmopolitanism and and uh, for a set of normative political theorists coming out of both a Rawlsian and Habermasian framework, the 90s was a period of, um, and really, you know, of rethinking what the sort of, um, what the site of political theory was and beginning to think about the ways in which economic globalization, um, the tr- transformations of international institutions, international law, uh, transnational um, forms of politics, the ways that that was kind of eroding, undermining, or transforming the nation state as the primary object of political um, political theorizing. So, um, so there, and so the cosmopolitan project in many ways has been an effort to move beyond the state uh, to imagine alternative forms to think, say, with the European Union or other kind of regional and international sites as a possible way of thinking beyond um, beyond the law of states to thinking about a cosmopolitan law of individuals. And, um, you know, I think for me, part of the question there was about how perhaps um, one to recover a kind of subaltern or alternative formulation of cosmopolitanism uh, from an earlier moment. And, and then I think also some uneasiness with the absence of empire really in that literature and thinking what would, what would happen if we put, have put um, empire front and center in the cosmopolitan literature. So those are the kinds of questions that, Again, being a person who straddled these two fields, those were the kinds of questions um, that really animated me uh, during graduate school. And this project is in some ways comes out of that, those three concerns. And you mentioned your training, um, of course, is straddling political theory and, and political science, as well as African-American studies. And the, the third sort of disciplinary um, formation there, I think, is, is also intellectual history and, and historians, um, like myself, mm-hmm. who are coming to your book and, and I think are really excited about it. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that's like methodologically or even in terms of the kinds of communities that you might be speaking to or speaking um, speaking in between? Because because that strikes me as both maybe a, a productive uh, place, uh, but also maybe one in which the stakes are very different for those different groups of people when it comes to a project like yours. How have you kind of navigated that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think in the process of writing this, uh, especially when it was still a dissertation, I was really anxious that um, it would be the kind of project that wasn't legible to anyone. You know, I'm not trained as a historian. Um, I think, um, but very much influenced by sort of uh, global, the kind of turn to the global in, in, in intellectual history, I think probably in terms of beyond the primary source that I was reading for my dis- dissertation, um, what I, the, I spent a great deal of time reading historians, um, you know, who were working on the history of human rights, the history of international law, um, and even when I kind of had a book propose a book prospectus uh, or book manuscript workshop a few years ago um, after the dissertation was done, um, you know, a, a, the kind of people I brought to discuss the book manuscript were, mo- you know, I think I invited three, four people, um, and three of the four were historians. Um, so post-colonial theorists, a kind of... Um, history of international law person and and an Africanist. And so for me, I think um, part of what like drew me to intellectual history, I think is, and history more generally is um, a sense that like part of the, I think the dilemma of being a political theorist, a political theory is really trying to think from the post-colonial world or um, is, you know, I think like political theorists work with a set of kind of concepts that we understand to be in some way universal, right? Um, so if we take the sovereign state, for instance, as or the sovereign nation state as a model that 
has become in some form, you know, in very contradictory and uneven ways, it has become the form in which politics is organized around the world. And so looking at the world, one could just think that this is that what we have here is a set of institutional forms that we can kind of theorize more generally from. But I think what history allows and um, allowed me to think about is how the kind of trajectories that that um, what, that different places took to get to that being the norm or the model um, are really differentiated. And part of what the, differentiates them is the history of, of empire. The reason these kinds of concepts came to be, or concepts and institutions came to be kind of normative and universal, is has something to do with the history of European imperial expansion. So, I think so. One thing then, a kind of more historically oriented political theory allows us to do is to trace what the kind of those trajectories of uh, universalization are. Um, Two, I think, you know, um, a lot of book is really about failed political projects or unrealized political projects. And I think, um, you know, uh, like a historical perspective lets you see kind of the, and so you can look at the, the history of decolonization and be like, it's a very easy story about the transition from empire to nation state, right? Uh, but a kind of this historically informed project I was engaged in allowed you to see the ways in which that trajectory was not a kind of straightforward one. It was not, um, it was not given from the beginning. Um, and it, 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 you know, we reached that vantage point, we reached that moment through a whole set of, um, failures and, um, the collapse of alternative imaginations. So I think, um, yeah, I feel like I feel very. Um, I feel like it's a very important thing to take history uh, as part of a at least a post-colonial political theory, and I think what differentiates this also for me is that um, from say an intellectual history or a history of political thought perspective is the kind of history or historical context I'm interested in isn't just about. Um, the intellectual context in which people are writing, for instance, and in thinking about the you know worlds of conversation um, that my actors are very much intervening and involved in, but also about the material and social histories that um, that you know create the conditions of possibility for their work, but also the material and social histories that they themselves as are narr are narrating and constituting as as they try to make the case for a particular vision of the world. Um, uh, so, yeah, so maybe I'll just leave it there on the method question. Yeah, I, I'd love to pick up on the, the bit about the relationship between concepts um, that are taken as universal and then, and then what in, in various moments people sort of call context or might call sort of the historical narrative, especially because so much of your book, one of the threads that runs throughout your book is the transformation of the concept of self-determination um, from something that is sort of always qualified with the adjective Wilsonian to something that is uh, substantively um, different and transformative itself in the hands of post-colonial thinkers um, and politicians. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about how one one goes about sort of toggling between these registers when precisely what's at stake in your book is the relationship between something like a universal concept and something like uh, struggle or specificity or location? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe one way to talk about this is um, the principle of self-determination itself. So I think this it kind of um, illuminates in some ways what I was saying earlier about how looking at from our vantage point, you can see this history of continuity, where maybe it's really a history of rupture and discontinuity. So if you look again at um, the universalization, the emergence of a right to self-determination in the 60s, in 1960s, basically, um, it's very easy from that vantage point to look backwards and to say, you know, something like, um, that 1960 moment is really an extension, a universalization um, of an elaboration of an earlier moment, the Wilsonian moment, or something like that, so that you can draw this easy um, 
or straightforward trajectory. And in that context, then, the work of anti-colonial actors um, or subaltern political actors more generally is is a story about how they become sort of um, vectors of universalization. They become the mechanisms by which a concept that already was already universal in some form gets to be, uh, realizes its potential through their political projects. And um, one the thing I try to show in the book in the first two substantive chapters is that uh, one, how, I mean, how, how it wasn't just that um, self-determination, the Wilsonian moment was kind of uh, foreclosed from the outside, but it's very articulation by figures like Wilson and Jan Smuts and its institutionalization in the league very much made it compatible with forms of imperial hierarchy. Uh, so, so it wasn't that it was just exclusionary, but that it created a kind of racialized and differentiated form of self-determination across, across within the league. Um, so then it's like, if we get, if we understand that what happens in the Wilsonian moment, isn't just that the kind of boundaries of inclusion are too, too narrow, but that the very structure of this, the concept of self-determination produces, um, produces hierarchies within the very, you know, within the kind of act who do get to be included in some form, I think it makes what the what anti-colonial actors do in the kind of um, in the aftermath of that very um, a, a distinctive, right? So they're not just asking by the 1960s for a expansion of the boundaries of the international. They're asking for a transformation of what it means to be part of the international, right? What sovereign equality say might mean, or what actually independence would require both from a, from a legal as well as a kind of political and economic perspective. Um, and so I think like thinking in those terms about part of the there, I guess, is that, um, you know, appropriation, it's, it's not that I'm interested in saying, saying that they, they had a kind of, I think appropriation is part of what subaltern actors do, right? They use the terms, the terms of engagement and try to use those terms of engagement against the terms of engagement in some ways or to reimagine what the terms of engagement. So I do think that's a, you know, it's a kind of reoccurring strategy of anti-colonial thinkers. Um, um, so, so it's not to say that it wasn't appropriation, but to say that appropriation can involve uh, and often does involve forms of innovation and intervention that actually transform the thing that is being appropriated. Um, I think for me, what's really interesting about the actors I look at there, um, including Kwame Nkrumah and George Padmore, um, Nandi Azikwe and Du Bois in that chapter on the right to self-determination is that part of what makes possible that innovation is a kind of restaging or re a rewriting of what self-determination, what is self-determination and answer to? What's the picture of M we want a right to self-determination to overcome? And by t attending more closely to the kind of, um, to the problems and questions that anti-colonial actors or any political actors really are asking, I think we can understand how the answer, even if it might be the same word as a different set of actors at a different moment, the answer is actually a, a different articulation of something like the right self-determination. And I guess, especially because, I, you know, as you mentioned, the, the book opens with Nkrumah and the Declaration of the Independence of Ghana um, in 1957, and then your story ends with with this moment um, in which Daniel Patrick Moynihan is, is writing this critique of of the um, NIO in in 75. There, mm -hmm. there very much is in your book a this sort of arc over these key key decades that people sort of call decolonization all at once, um, but also the nested in your story are, are the legacies of, of all of this, right? Precisely because a lot of these projects turn to something that then sort of local actors or other types of anti-colonial actors um, see as see as their adversary kind of in the, in the wake of, of decolonization, whether that's uh, 
a regime that becomes more authoritarian or one that embraces neoliberalism or one that engages in internal violence. Um, and so with, with those kinds of legacies at play, as well as the legacies embodied by somebody like, like Moynihan of, of the advent of a different kind of economic order and the neoliberalization of the 70s and onwards, um, how did you yeah. go about writing your story knowing that these, these stakes and these, these legacies are so jealously guarded by kind of everybody who sees themselves as an heir to these projects? You know, there are people who, who um, feel very, uh, what's the word? Uh, they feel like they, they own a lot of these legacies, whether it's politicians or, mm. or political groups today, or whether it's historians of these various um, isms. So how, how, do you, how do you navigate writing about something that sort of goes off and, have these li goes off and has the, these lives of its own um, after the kind of tight two-decade moment that you're looking at? Yeah. Um, you know, what are things that... Uh... Uh, I spent two months in, in Ghana in Accra doing archival research back in 2013. And um, in the middle of the city, there's this huge kind of, as you might imagine, a really huge, very recent statue and uh, to Nkrumah, the founder of the nation. But right next to this very glossy, very new um, statue is, is the kind of remnants of an older statue of Nkrumah are, is kind of... Um, it has, it's, it's just the head, I think, um, if I remember correctly, and it has a hole in it. But basically, it's the remnant of a statue that got destroyed after the 66 coup. And what's interesting, I mean, partly I bring this up because the two statues in relation, I mean, I thought it was a really interesting way of commemorating to like, yes, there is this kind of reappropriation of Nkrumah in this moment and a whole lot of figures and who would call themselves Nkrumahists, um, but at the same time, like holding also that moment in which uh, of the coup and the and the kind of rejection of the Nkrumahist project after 1966. So I I think that's a kind of nice model in some ways, or a nice picture of the kind of question you're asking. Um, but I do think that you know I I when writing this. I think I went through a lot of different stages. I think of first taking a sort of um, recuperative model uh, to this question, like, you know, if if the kind of story about anti-colonial nationalism was that, you know, it, it basically devolved into these forms of authoritarianism and, and kind of its fidelity to the kind of state model resulted in these all these forms of kind of domestic violence and exclusion. So part of me initially, I think, wanted to tell a kind of um, recuperative story where I showed the ways in which uh, the figures were, you know, that they were internationalists, that there was this whole other side to them. And I think where I ultimately ended up, and I hope this comes through in the final product, is, you know, I think the things that I'm drawn to about these figures um, might also be the things that undermine the project or led to these contradictions. So what I mean by that is the book is, is kind of the story of world making it tells is um, driven by the sense that, or yeah, that anti-colonial nationalists were, were very, very prescient actually about the limits of national sovereignty, right? Um, from the, from the interwar period, from their observations of Ethiopia and Liberia and Haiti, they had a key, keen sense of the ways in which the sovereign state model was actually not going to secure, not going to guarantee them, um, uh, in, you know, independence. So it already had to be rethought. Um, and so, I mean, on the one hand, I think this, this real concern and awareness about the limits of the state model, uh, you know, that's what engenders all these kind of creative projects of regional federation of the new international economic order. But also the anxiety about, about uh, the very anxiety about the kind of fragility of the post-colonial state is also what then begins to authorize um, uh, the forms of exclusion, uh, uh, you know, um, political authoritarianism, the kind of undermining of, um, of um, any political dissent within the country. So, you know, so I think like, I mean, I think it's important to understand the kind of limits and failures of the project as issuing from the very kind of dilemmas that they're trying to resolve 
rather than reading them as a set of kind of um, congenital flaws of either nationalism as such or or kind of as a lot of people as a lot of you know uh, books about nationalism in this period would kind of like version of oriental despotism or something like that as kind of cultural deficits or deficiencies that get worked out in a particular kind of particular kind of way so 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 that's sort of the kind of tension i want to hold open about the ways in which um uh the kinds of contradictions they're dealing with in terms of the ways hierarchy international hierarchy undermines uh, undermines the sovereign state model both kind of opens up these new pol political possibilities and it engenders or makes possible, makes available these forms of kind of domestic exclusion and domination. And I think what you find also is that as the space for, um, as the, as a space for reimagining the relationship between the domestic and international gets narrower and narrower through this, through this period, um, you see this kind of the, um, exclusionary violent, uh, dimensions of it being articulated on the on the domestic side. That's one, one thing I would say. The second thing I, I think is that, you know, I do think this set of figures that I look at are really, they're really, again, very prescient about the limits of state model vis-a-vis -vis the international realm, like vis-a-vis -vis these questions of international hierarchy, economic inequality, forms of neo-colonial domination. I do think they are less, um, or they, they kind of undermine uh, what would be a central part, what has become and has been a central part of uh, post-colonial politics, which is this internal question about um, about questions of majorism, ethnic and religious pluralism. And there is both this kind of um, and very modernist and utopian uh, view that a kind of a politics of universal citizenship within the domestic within the domestic context will be sufficient um but never i think for a lot of these figures for uh, more most of these figures at least never a real consideration of the ways in which um um actually modern forms of politics the party system elect elections might politicize uh forms of ethnic identity right and um and so, the, you know, the work of Mahmoud Mamdani and others in this context has illuminated the kind of ways in which uh, these forms of ethnic politics get calcified, actually, in the context of the post-colonial settlement. Um, I don't, I think I I'm, didn't get to your neoliberalism question, but I would say, you know, I think one of the things about trying to tell a more complicated story about what led to the failures of the post-colonial project, um, thinking about it as a set of kind of contradictions opened up by, one, on the one hand, this relationship between the domestic and international, and on the other hand, these questions about kind of um, the relationships between identity and um, democratic majoritarian politics is, um, is a way to resist and to reject the kind of the kind of narrations of failure that come out of the 1970s moment, vis-a-vis um, -vis Moynihan and others, which is a a, a kind of narrate, narrating post-colonial failure as as merely deficiency, as deviance from a set of normative prescriptions about the state and how the state ought to be institutionalized. So I think these stories about the alternative stories of failure or trying to narrate fa failure differently, it's not, a, it's not an effort, again, to kind of romanticize the anti-colonial project, but an attempt, an attempt, I think, to think the question of specificity, to think again about how, you know, even if there are a set of universal institutional forms, how their specific articulations in these colonial and post-colonial contexts uh, engendered engender distinctive kind of dilemmas or or maybe um, you know exacerbate or uh, highlight in a particularly acute form more general dilemmas about the state form and democratic politics mm -hmm. yeah that that makes a great deal of sense especially because 
as you were talking, I, I found myself also wondering about um, the place of this this dialectic between the the national and the international in the in the discourse and, and practice of the people that you're looking at, and whether it tracks onto a similar um, a similar reaction in academia um, to kind of centering the nation state or the nation or the state um, as untethered from one another as the site for either thinking through concepts like justice or sovereignty or thinking through kind of a long arc of, of the 20th and now 21st century, we seem to sort of go back and forth, right? To, to, to centering that as a site, to thinking more about universal concepts and internationalism, then reworking what it means to be, um, do you, you know, re reworking what it might mean to, to be preoccupied with the national. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering, after having worked on this project and after having sort of excavated the place of the nation state inside of these world making projects, um, can you say something about uh, what writing a project now looks like, especially, you know, for, for a graduate student or an early career scholar concerned with these questions? I mean, what what, if anything, is left of that framework for productive analysis mm. um, or or is that sort of something that we have to always take with its other uh it's it's other imaginings and it's and it's other sort of um formations at the same time is there is there something left there do you think productively you, uh just so you were coming in a, a little in and out there um oh, could you just repeat sorry no no <laughs> just... that's okay um no i was asking about sort of the place of thinking about the nation state now um as a scholar uh -huh. or as somebody concerned both with how discourse and practice operated for historical actors concerned with something like justice or sovereignty, but also sort of acknowledging mm -hmm. that whether in intellectual history or in political theory, um, the nation state has long been the site of thinking through these concepts, but we also sometimes mm -hmm. have a little bit of a, a reactionary move ourselves. Um, I say ourselves kind of as, as groups of scholars mm -hmm. thinking about this, right? Because in, in some moments, in some decades, uh, sort of reacting maybe to current events, people center what it might mean to do politics inside of a nation state. And then we sort of swing outward to thinking mm -hmm. exclusively about the international as though those things um, are mutually yeah. exclusive. Right. And so I, I guess I was thinking yeah. about if you had any reflections on after having finished yeah. this project on, on kind of what to do with that maybe reactionary impulse inside of yeah. our own scholarly community and whether there's something left um, to be said about the nation state in that, in that earlier way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. I mean, I think so. Maybe I'll answer by starting in some ways um, with uh, how I was positioning myself vis-a-vis -vis other scholars who are rethinking the internet, uh, rethinking this question of, of what was the moment of decolonization. So, um, say for instance, like my my reading of kind of the Federalist projects in the Caribbean and in in, in, in and then attempts at Pan Africanism. Um, institutionalized uh, Pan-African Federation uh, in the same period, um, you know, there has been, I think, over the last, you know, decade or so, growing interest in this question of, like, resisting the empire-to-nation trajectory of, of, of um, decolonization. So here I'm joining folks like Fred Cooper and Gary Wilder and others. And so one of the things that I wanted to resist in some ways was a kind of looking to an, the anti-colonial nationalists as a way to answer our own kind of preoccupations about the limits of the nation state. Mm -hmm. So so I think the point of like, like turning to anti-colonial internationalism of that period is not because it's like, it, you know, it doesn't give us a clearly obvious non-national um, or anti-national internationalism, right? And so, like, we might want that for our moment, and I think that's a question we have to wrestle with, but I think it's really important to think about what their own questions about the failures or limits of the nation-state were, mm -hmm. and maybe there are ways that they help us rethink what we might, what we would say, re rethink how we would ask our own questions about the nation state in the contemporary moment but but i don't think they offer us an easy like either you were a kind of nationalist who was for the nation state or you were um a kind of you thought of decolonization in a non-national fashion so i think 
like especially um, Krumah, but also Eric Williams, really resist that sort of reading. You can't read their Federalist projects in those ways. And so, you know, so I think there's, I mean, this raises a lot of questions about, or possible directions to, um, to uncover. I mean, I think one question, like, in the history of kind of, in global history, uh, um, and intellectual history that has yet to be fully just, dis- dis- like, answered is the question of, why was it actually, you know, in the first place that the nation state did become um, a modular form in the in some ways, right? So, so even if a lot of us have been saying for the last decade, like that trajectory was uh, uh, not, we shouldn't take that trajectory for granted. Here are all these other things that had to fail before that became the case. Um, I think we still haven't fully you know, answered why ultimately did the nation state become a modular form. And so, you know, I'm thinking, of course, like Manu Goswami's early book, Producing India, gives like one answer of that story. So I think there's still more work to be done about the various reasons and trajectories that lead to the sovereign state, nation state becoming the model, even if, even if it wasn't inevitable that it became the model, right? Um so I think that's one kind of question I would be interested. I think there's still much work to be done around. Uh, um, a second, again, on the kind of more intellectual history, global history side uh, is, you know, I'm, I think another, I said earlier that I was sort of, um, you know, trying to take that story of black internationalism from the interwar period forward. And I think one big just disjuncture uh, between the periods is that the earlier moment is the, these forms of kind of, you know, they were real transnational networks um, that are sometimes have an institutional site, sometimes not, or they're kind of, they're not mechanisms, say, of, like regional federation, that's not the form of the international the internationalism it takes. So I think there's still a question about for me about um, those forms of trans how those forms of transnational solidarity that aren't that aren't organized around um, states. Uh, you know, I think that form of internationalism does persist after 45 and into the age of decolonization. So it's like the question would be something like, how do those sit with and against these now state-led projects of internationalism of a certain kind, right? So that not all anti-colonial internationalisms are the same, and there may be ways in which these sit uneasily vis-a-vis each other. Um, there's this important episode early in, in after um, Ghana's independence where, you know, um, uh, Francis Fanon comes to an, a meeting of the Conference of Independent African States as a representative of, you know, um, um, uh, the FLN in Algeria. And, and he comes uninvited. You know, there's supposed to be a, a separate meeting for kind of still ongoing anti-colonial struggles. Um, and he sort of, you know, intervenes and interrupts this meeting of, of, of independent states. Mm-hmm. And it sort of makes a case for why these independent states should support Algerians. It's a real moment of tension, right, of like, uh, you know, discrepancy between these kinds of projects. So I think that would be another thing to think more about. How do these kinds of non-statist forms of transnationalism that persist now sit in a context of, you know, in, in, is independent states that both support, want to support, you know, ongoing efforts at anti-decolonization, but also have their own agendas and prerogatives as states, right? Um, the, so that might be another thing. And then a third, I think, more in the context of, of um theory, you know, I gesture in the book towards the possibility that um, these forms of this largely historical uh, kind of approach I've provided into thinking about the domestic and international might provide resources for kind of rethinking cosmopolitanism uh, or kind of post-colonial cosmopolitanism. And there, I do think, um, you know, I... I'm not really a normative theorist, but I do think sort of there's real 
possibility for a more normative political theory that um, begins from this concept, from this like history empire and thinks about what kind of ideas about global justice and and international institutions would have to look like in order to overcome like persistent structures of and inequality. And I think, you know, there's um, here, like the work of Catherine Liu on reparations and global justice might be one place to start. Others were thinking about the transnational economic order investment regimes, um, uh, you know, transnational um, uh, corporations and their and their rights, uh, like Turku's Excel. So those those kinds of places about thinking, thinking about the contemporary, uh, the contemporary legacies and persistences of empire in the global economic order, and building a kind of normative theory out of those kind of legacies would be another sort of project, I think, that um, still needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And before we wrap up, though, I just wanted to ask as well about precisely that last point, because I really do think that that's um, one of the one of the richest things that came out of your book for me was was kind of thinking about um, the the further afterlives of the of the political forms and political subjects that your actors elaborate. Um, and now I'm not asking, mm -hmm. of course, I know that obviously this is a, a book of political political theory and, and, and intellectual history, but just thinking about what's going on um, in Algeria or in Sudan or in, or in Haiti and, and in many other places, mm -hmm. um, including the United States right now, vis-a-vis um, -vis the, the resurgence or the kind of return of, of at least attention to a mass politics, a politics of protest, of disruption, of interruption. Yeah. Um, and then the academic spaces of the global South is places where students especially um, are reckoning with kind of the, the generational uh, legacies of these types of thinking and thinking through new theoretical models to, to really bring together something like um, political thought and, and the street politics that, of course, like I said, so many um, groups of students around the world are, are engaged in. Is there, could you say something mm -hmm. about where political theory and intellectual history, the way you've done it, um, can help us think mm -hmm. about the place of something like um, protest or a mass movement um, that, that certainly has leaders and thinkers, but um, maybe in terms of genre, are producing work that's that's a little bit different than the folks that we think of as the architects of, of sort of high decolonization. Um, just thinking in terms of this kind of contemporary moment that you you brought up. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think this is one of the um, it is a I think a a limit possibly of of the structure of political theory. Um, uh, you know, I was recently asked. Uh, in giving a book talk like well what how do we know what you know just ordinary people thought of Nkrumah's like federation project or or Eric Williams's plans right and and so the like the the emphasis on the written word um or the the spoken and recorded word of of certain kinds of political actors really obscures I think the broader the broader constellation of forces that make these politics and projects possible. It also kind of obscures the kind of uh, many afterlives of these projects. So, you know, my story of the Federation projects is, is largely one of failure, right? That, that, that in their institutional form, they don't exist and didn't come to be. But say around the question of Pan-Africanism, for instance, it's, you know, these forms of, of kind of um, forms of solidarity, the civil society organizations through which various activists and organizers are are linked together, you know, the blog Africa as a country, the forms of kind of cultural exchange between various kinds of spaces on the African continent. So if you look at other spaces and other forms of kind of political and social life that, that isn't high politics, then you can then it's like pan-africanism exists in a variety of different constellations right and so i think you know along i guess this is a plea for i think 
collectible history, you know, can do a, a certain kind of work, but but it should be more embedded, I think, in forms of like social history that give us a real sense of the broader landscapes. Um, um, that would be one kind of plea. I think a second might be um, to think more about what counts as a text uh, and how we might read. Um, so the like image, for instance, the image I chose for the cover of the book is a painting by uh, British Guyanese artist Frank Bowling, um, and he made a series of paintings in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, as um, a called Mapa Mundi. So it's a series of kind of, you know, map paintings that focus a ton on the African continent, South America, and his um, um, birthplace of Guyana. And, you know, he He's a, he would be invited to the, he wins a, a prize at the Dakar um, Arts Festival, I think in 1968, although um, maybe a little later. And so, you know, what do we mean to think, to think with the forms of cultural production that, you know, are such, that, um, that coincide with these political projects, for instance, that I've, I've laid out in the book. Um, so I think how that's connected to the present is, you know, what's so interesting to me about the contemporary present is in some ways the invocate, say some of the invocations of an older language, for instance, decolonization, right? Um, decolonize the curriculum, decolonize the university um, in the South African context, and then it's, it's uptake across the world. Um, so the, the ways in which languages of decolonization persist, um, you know, arguments force, even if the term, it, I think perhaps not the term self-determination itself, but something like self-rule, you know, democracy, um, and a real sense about, and, a, and an argument about self-rule or democracy that, that insists on a kind of economic along with a kind of political side of it. So, so I think, I guess what I want to say about those persistences is I think, as I was saying about the earlier moment, it's really important not to read these as straightforward trajectories, right? To not, to not be like, oh, you know, the invocations of decolonization now mean the same things that they meant in an earlier moment. Um, but to try to do the same work of thinking about what are the kind of particular political predicaments of post-colonial societies, you know, set you know, in the kind of aftermath of, uh, of a particular vision of decolonization and self-determination? What predicaments and problems does this moment um, raise for, for, you know, all kinds of political actors? Um, uh, um, yeah, so that would be, I think, one one way to take a kind of, I think, a methodological lesson that my book offers um, into the into the present. Um, the second, I think, is you know, I'm really, I'm really struck. I, I was struck by this in my in the actors I look at the ways that like part of how people narrate or come to understand what their political predicament is is by re-narrating their pasts, right? Telling new 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 stories about how it is that they got to this particular place. So in that earlier moment, you know, there was this kind of effort in the 1930s to rewrite the history of slavery and its role in constituting the modern world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what what you find really interesting about, you know, one way I think to read the story, to read the, say, the demands for decolonizing the university or decolonizing the curriculum is also a way of demanding a different kind of history about how the present got constituted, about what are the forces that have created the situation in which decolonization appears partial or circumscribed or limited, and how to kind of resituate the present in that history. I mean, I think a more, you know, a more explicit engagement with the rewriting of history is saying all the projects of uh, demands for reparations that have um, emerged in the, um, if you know, from the kind of um, case of, say, um, the Mau Mau Rebellion, um, uh, members of the Mau Mau Rebellion receiving reparations for Britain, to the more kind of ambitious demand of, of the Caribbean community that 
that European states owe reparations for genocide and slavery. There too, and here they're tracing the very histories that Eric Williams and others wrote about, but what's so interesting to me is that the inflection of what that history is meant to do for the current moment is really different from what it did for an earlier set of thinkers. Um, so, so, you know, um, slavery, for instance, doesn't, is it just, it becomes a way of thinking about these, like the ways in which the legacies of slavery and, um, and colonialism are transmitted and inherited and embodied also. Um, um, and, you know, the language of repair as the primary idiom of justice um, is a really, you know, a post kind of Cold War language that would have been kind of unrecognizable, I think, to um, unrecognizable or or just not the idiom with which um, an earlier generation of, of um, people uh, thought and worked uh, in the age of decolonization. So, uh, um I guess I, I don't know if I'm answering this question well, but I think I would just say this inattentiveness to kind of the particular kinds of questions that um, folks are asking on the ground, mm-hmm. the ways that history and his, historical knowledge gets reformulated and reconstructed for those kinds of demands, I think would be a second thing. And then a third, as I was saying, is just to proliferate um, what we take to be this text of, of political thinking um, so that we might we might engage with forms of thinking and imagining that don't don't appear in the form of the of the treatise or the constitution or the pamphlet yeah no that that makes a great deal of sense that was fantastic thank you and, and very helpful I think um, both for, for someone concerned with sort of politics and justice as, as they may be enacted, um, but also for, you know, many of our listeners, myself included, who are thinking about how to write these things um, in, our, in our particular historical juncture. Um, thank you. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Professor Gedichu. Um, yeah, I, I think that you've, you've left us with a lot to think about, and, and I hope that folks who haven't had a chance to read your book yet will, will, will pick it up and, and be able to think with you on many of these things. So thanks so much. Thanks very much, Disha. This was great.